last time we spoke, General Homa was pulling his hair out. Well, figuratively, anyways, as the man did not have much hair. The battling bastards of Batan took a large toll on his forces. He repeatedly had to beg for reinforcements. But when he finally got what he needed, he exacted the death blow. General Douglas MacArthur fled to Australia, giving orders for the men in Batan to fight to the death. Luckily, this would not become a reality, and despite poor General Wainwright trying to stop them, the forces did surrender. Batan was taken. Now all that was left was Corrigador, which would give Homa quite a headache. And alongside this, we heard the horrifying story of the Batan Death March. But for today, we are venturing back into the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, and one of the most daring operations yet the Doolittle Raid. This episode is The Doolittle Raid. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, after all that, if you're still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where you can find a few videos going all the way back to the Opium Wars, and some more recent content, such as my series on General Rupertus during the Pacific War. Give it a look, it mean a lot to me. During the first four months of the war, General Homa lacked sufficient resources to perform operations on both the northern and southern Philippine islands. Basically, as long as the struggle was being fought on Luzon, the islands in the south were relatively safe from invasion. Homa did, however, perform limited operations to gain a foothold on Zulu by taking Jolo, and on Mindanao by seizing Davao, and he did have a landing at Zambaunga, and this occurred all the way back in early March. Now, after the fall of Bataan, Homa could now launch operations on the southern islands to gradually complete the conquest of the Philippines entirely. Homa took two battle-hardened detachments, the Kawaguchi Detachment coming out of Borneo and the Kawamura Detachment coming out of Malaya. The Kawaguchi Detachment would hit Cebu, while the Kawamura Detachment would hit Penae. Both of these islands were part of a group called the Visayan Islands, and they lay between Mindanao and Luzon. The plan was simple take these islands before moving on to the larger Mindanao. Brigadier General William Sharp commanded the Visanel Mindanao Force, and he had his HQ on Cebu. His force was composed almost entirely of Philippine Army troops, around three divisions, some provisional units and some constabulary units. Sharp faced the same problem as Luzon. His men were undertrained, lacked numbers, and lacked equipment of all types. There was a massive shortage of blankets, mosquito bars. Each man had an Einfield rifle, but many did not know how to properly use them. 
Not to mention, most of these rifles were defective and broken down. They had some .30 and .50 caliber machine guns, but many were so defective, they had to be disregarded. Spare parts for any of these weapons were lacking, so most of the guns that needed to be repaired were literally just tossed away. They had no anti-tank guns, very little grenades, no gas masks, no steel helmets, and their ammunition supply was basically abysmal. The biggest issue was a serious shortage of artillery. And would you believe this, they did not have enough uniforms to go around. Very, very bad state. General Sharp's original mission was to defend the entire area south of Luzon, but when this became impossible, General MacArthur ordered him to defend Mindanao and its important airfield at Del Monte. If the defense fell apart, he was to establish guerrilla groups in the interior of the islands. Brigadier General Bradford Chinuith was Sharp's co-equal on the Visayas. Chinuith had some 20,000 men, 7,000 Pinay, under the command of Albert Christie, 6,500 in Cebu, under Colonel Irving Scudder, 3,000 Negroes under Colonel Roger Hillsman, 2,500 in Leti and Samar under Colonel Theodore Cornell, and 1,000 in Bohal under Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Grimms. For over a month, Chinuith oversaw the construction of airfields, tank obstacles, trenches, gun emplacements, strung wire, and prepared demolitions on Panay and Cebu. Chinuith also prepared a program called Operation Baus Ao, Get It Back. This was a large-scale movement of supplies into the interior of the islands for later use in guerrilla warfare. Secret caches were established in remote and inaccessible places. This program made the Filipino populace feel quite abandoned and hurt their faith in the American defense of them. On April 5th, Kawaguchi reached the Lingian Gulf, and from there he made his way to Cebu. By April 9th, Chinuith received reports of the impending invasion and he put all of his men on high alert. Kawaguchi's detachment of 4,852 battle-hardened men sailed in 11 transports, escorted by three cruisers. The IJN force broke up into two convoys, one landing at Cebu City, the other around Toledo. The capital of Cebu held the Cebu Military Police Regiment of about 1,100 men, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Howard Edmonds. They would be facing the bulk of Kawaguchi's force. Edmonds was to hold out just long enough to give demolition teams enough time to complete their work before falling back into the hills. Chenoweth said of this, I had no idea of being able to stop the Japs, but I thought we could spare two or three days in withdrawal. End of quote. The fight for Cebu City lasted a single day. Kawaguchi's men were better trained, larger in number, and had better weapons. The defenders were pushed back slowly, but they managed to get the time needed to blow the bridges leading into the interior. By 5pm, the Japanese broke off their actions on the outskirts of the city. Edmund and his men pulled out under the cover of darkness. The Japanese would enjoy equal success over in the western part of the island at Toledo. The Philippine army opposed the enemy landings vigorously, but were unable to stop them and had to pull back along the cross-inland highway towards the town of Cantabaco, leaving Toledo in Japanese hands. At Cantabaco, midway across the island, the highway splits in two. One branch leads to General Chinowitz HQ near Tilase. 
the other to Naga. General Chinueth knew, full well, the importance of Cantabaco to the defense of Zebu. He placed men under Colonel Grimms there to make sure demolitions were made to halt the Japanese advance. Unfortunately, the Japanese stormed Cantabaco with tanks and armored cars far too fast for the demolition teams to do their work. Colonel Grimms was captured by a Japanese patrol as they made a mad dash towards Chinowitz HQ near Tilase and Naga. Chinowith was forced to disband his HQ and flee north, as was the same for the forces at Naga. Central Cebu fell on the night of April the 12th, and guerrilla warfare would be the only option available to the Allies afterwards. General Wainwright conceded the loss of Cebu and ordered General Sharp to take back command of the remaining Vizian forces by April the 16th. Over in Penae, Colonel Christie prepared his defenses, and on April the 16th, the Kawamura Detachment landed at Iloilo on the southwest corner of Penay and Capiz in the north. Two days later, a third landing was made at San Jose, and all of these landings went unopposed. By April the 20th, General Kawamura had occupied the strategic points of the island, and as far as he was concerned, I mean, his campaign was won and done. However, for Colonel Christie, safe in the mountainous interior, and very well stocked. The campaign had just begun. Wild game was plentiful. There was ample fresh water, and hell, they had 500 head of cattle, 15,000 bags of rice, hundreds of canned goods. They were definitely prepared for a longer campaign. Christie sent units to perform hit-and-run raids on the Japanese, and the Japanese eventually made punitive expeditions at San Jose to try and locate the guerrillas HQ. One of those Japanese companies were ambushed by a company of guerrillas armed with only bows, spears, and bolos. They killed all of them. Yet despite the guerrilla warfare, for intensive purposes, the island was neutralized, and soon Mindanao would be hit. But for now, we're going to turn our attention back to the Dutch East Indies, on March the 5th, Imperial General HQ issued Order Number 62 to the combined fleet that upon the completion of the Java operation, forces were to annihilate the remaining enemy forces in Dutch-held New Guinea and to occupy strategic points. The objectives of the occupation were to survey the country for possible sites for airfields, anchorages, and locate other oil fields. Plans involved performing landings at Fafak, Babo, Sorong, Manokwari, Momi, Sabir, Soroy, Sarmi, and Hollandia. They would need to garrison Fafak and Manokwari as well as perform a survey of Bola on Serem Island to investigate the condition of its oil field. In charge of this operation, known as the N Expeditionary Force, was Rear Admiral Rutaro Fujita. Fujita left Ambon on March the 29th, bringing a small force of 1,500 men, escorted by the seaplane carrier Chitozi, light cruiser Kinu, and two destroyers. They made their way to Siram Island, and on March the 31st found the town of Bola deserted. From there, Fujita divided his forces into two, and he sent the first detachment to Fafak, which found a small Knell garrison who surrendered without a fight. In Babo, there was a garrison of 200 Knell soldiers, an airfield being constructed, and some oil fields in the vicinity. Babo had been raided as early as December of 1941 by aerial bombers, 
and thus three Hudson bombers were sent there to act as fighter protection. The Dutch soldiers were trying to improve defenses as best as they could, and they were working on a second runway for the airfield when the second detachment arrived on April the 2nd. As the Japanese stormed the town of Babo, many of the Canal forces managed to flee aboard smaller vessels and escape to places like Australia. In Sorong was a Dutch air group who had three Dornier Du 24K flying boats and a seaplane tender named Arend. The first detachment arrived in Sorong on April the 4th. They began occupying the town and got into a very small skirmish with the small Canal garrison force before taking them all prisoner. In Tarnat, there was three Dornier flying boats, and the second detachment arrived there on April the 7th. The Japanese bombarded the enemy's defenses, forcing the Knil garrison to come out and surrender. The Japanese would end up taking about 150 Dutch prisoners. The N expeditionary force reunited and landed together at Manahuari on April the 12th, and they occupied the town quite quickly. Around 150 Knil soldiers were reported to be garrisoning the town, but, by the time the Japanese occupied it, they found out that the Dutch had fled into the mountains. A detachment of 192 men, making up the 4th Guard Unit, were left to garrison Manakwari in case the Dutch did come back. The Knil commander, Captain Wilhelms Gerons, waged guerrilla warfare until he fell sick, and by April the 18th, he was captured and later executed in Manakwari in May of 1944. However, some of his remaining units banded together around Sergeant Moretz Christian Kokarink. They went further inland and continued to wage guerrilla warfare until October of 1944, when they made contact with U.S. forces and were evacuated to Australia. Imagine fighting for that long in those conditions. The N-Expeditionary Force divided again at this point, setting sail for the rest of their targets. In the small town of Moami, there were several plantations run by Japanese citizens. Though it was not a military target, it held no harbor, no garrison, and no airfield. The second detachment landed at Moami on April 15th and occupied the town, just investigating it for potential Knil forces, but none were to be found. Meanwhile, the first detachment arrived in Seroy on April 16th and occupied the town with ease as there was also no Knil forces on Yapin Island. The second detachment made it to Sarmi on April the 19th and got into a small skirmish with a Knil garrison there. After taking prisoners, the Japanese left a very small garrison of just 68 men in case any more Knil were hiding about. And finally, the first detachment landed at Hollandia on April the 19th and also got into a small skirmish, but they quickly overran the Knil garrison with relative ease. The Japanese left a garrison in Hollandia before most of the N expeditionary force returned to Ambon. This is all sort of the unsexy part of warfare you don't hear much about, the mop-up operations, which were particularly difficult in the Pacific as you can imagine, with hundreds of small islands that could become threats if left unchecked. Indeed, you do not want your enemy to hold any airfields in particular. Later on, in places like Guadalcanal, this would be the key to the entire war. So, these mop-up operations are actually very, very important. Another important note related to the Dutch East Indies is the demise of Abdicom, which resulted in some major changes for the rest of the Pacific War. Now, the Pacific theater was being broken into new strategic areas. 
General Douglas MacArthur, who is now in Australia, was appointed command of the Southwest Pacific Area, and the remainder of the entire Pacific Ocean went to Admiral Nimitz. So this is to mean the U.S. Army would be operating under MacArthur and the Navy under Nimitz. A very loving relationship blossomed. This is, of course, a joke, much like the IGA and the IGN, but not as ridiculous, might I add. The two services of the U.S. military would find themselves at odds many, many times, and they would fight tooth and nail for resources. But unlike the Japanese, however, this would not result in the Navy literally tossing army units onto islands purposely without supplies. And yes, this did occur. The U.S. will have something the Imperial Japanese military never quite acquired, that being key figureheads who could wrangle people like Douglas MacArthur in, form compromises, and make everybody play nice, so to say. Now, with the Dutch East Indies campaign firmly in Japan's hands, they began to consolidate their gains in the Pacific. Up until now, the Japanese had achieved their Phase 1 objectives with relative ease, and now they were planning out Phase 2. There were some who advocated for an invasion of Australia, which is straight up batshit crazy given they already had 35 or so divisions stuck in China and could not hope to invade Australia from a logistical standpoint alone. It was actually the IGA who refused to support an Australian campaign, arguing resources were better spent in the China War, which was very accurate. The IGN advocated for an invasion of Ceylon, but this idea was also disregarded. Eventually, they all came to a conclusion that they should expand more so on the New Guinea campaign, with the potential of expanding towards other targets like Fiji, Samoa, and New Caledonia. The idea behind taking any of these places was to cut off Australia from the United States. Basically, why invade Australia when you can simply neutralize it? There was even some thought into forcing Australia to sue for peace. Admiral Inoue ordered Rear Admiral Kanazawa Mazio to depart from Rabul with his flagship destroyer Mitsuyuki and the destroyers Yayoi and Mochizuki, supported by the 6th and 18th squadrons of the 4th Fleet, to occupy strategic points in the northern Solomon Islands. In early March, they had taken Buka Island, where they would begin to build an airfield then they occupied Kita and Bougainville, where 20 Australian commandos of the first independent company garrisoning the island retreated further inland before managing to be evacuated. On Bougainville, the Japanese began to build up its naval and air bases, which would allow them to extend operations into the other Solomon Islands. On April the 8th, Inuai ordered more IGN forces to occupy the Admiralty Islands and New Britain, which held even more airfields. All of these islands were like stepping stones edging closer and closer to the primary target that was going to be Port Moresby. Port Moresby was the perfect place to use as a base of operations to hit shipping between Australia and the United States. To cut the supplies and isolate the nation. But a catastrophic event would occur that would hamper this entire operation. Over on the Allies' side... Places all over the Pacific were being garrisoned, such as Hawaii, New Zealand, Midway, New Caledonia, Fiji, American and Western Samoa, Palmeria, Bora Bora, Wallace, Canton Island, Christmas Island, Tango Tabu, Fanning Island, and Ascension Island. 
That was quite a mouthful. A large part of all of this effort was to secure southern lifelines for Australia. There was also, however, another major operation about to take place. Mere hours after the raid on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt asked his military chiefs if they could find a way to hit back at Japan. For over three months, he continued to return to this point as American morale was plummeting. He kept asking his chiefs, was there any chance of bombing the Japanese home islands? Admiral King assigned two senior members of his staff, Captain Frog Lowe and Captain Donald Duncan, to investigate the possibilities. There were no easy options. The distance between Japan and any terrestrial airfields from which long-range bombers might launch was quite far. There was China, the USSR, and the Aleutians, but all of these were disregarded for various reasons. They then thought about using a carrier force to creep close enough to strike Japan. Yet, to do this was like being a worm on a hook if the carriers would have to await the returning aircraft. To lose any of the few and precious American flattops to the Japanese was unacceptable at this point. Frog Lowe, on a trip to Norfolk, inspected the newly commissioned USS Hornet when an idea hit him. Given good use of going with the wind at her maximum speed of around 32 knots, the USS Hornet might be able to push 40 knots. If this could be achieved, a twin turbine engine medium bomber might be capable of taking off from the carrier using the teeth of a gale force headwind. If the bomber was configured to lighten its load, perhaps it could be launched 500 miles off the coast of Japan. It could drop its payload over a target in Japan and fly past the island towards China, where it could potentially land in friendly territory. The operation would be very risky for the carrier task force and nearly suicidal for the bombers, but it could theoretically work, and it certainly would not be expected by the Japanese. Admiral King described the concept to General Hap Arnold, Chief of the Army Air Force, who was quite eager and willing to try it out. General Arnold chose Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, one of the most famous aviators in the United States, to look into the project. Planning was done under utmost secrecy. Doolittle identified the B-25 Mitchell bomber as the best possible plane for the job. The B-25 was configured to carry a one-ton bomb payload for an effective range of 2,400 nautical miles. Supplementary fuel tanks in the bomb compartment, crew corridor, and ventral turret would double its fuel capacity, in theory. The entire plane would be stripped of everything possible to lighten its weight, including the radio, bottom gun turret, and Norden bombsite. Lieutenant Henry Miller was assigned to train the bomber crews in short takeoff techniques at Eglin Field, Florida. When Miller showed up to Eglin, he was asked if he had ever flown a B-25, and he said, no, I've never even seen one. Miller was told the B-25 needed around 110 miles per hour to take off, but on his first day of training, he established the real number was around 65 to 70 miles with its full flaps, a speed that could be achieved on a carrier deck run. Miller planted white flags on the runways, marking a distance at around 200, 300, and 500 feet. Training the pilots to take off was not that hard. It's actually much more difficult to learn how to land on an aircraft carrier, which, fortunately, they would not have to learn. 
But Doolittle worried. How would the army pilot's nerves hold up when they stared over that short, wet pitching carrier deck on the rough seas? When Doolittle himself climbed into a B-25 cockpit on the USS Hornet, he was very surprised at how short the deck looked. Lieutenant Miller was sitting beside Doolittle, and he reassured Doolittle he had taken off with much less deck space. Doolittle asked him, Henry, what name do they use in the Navy for bullshit? On the first day of April at the Alameda Naval Air Station in San Francisco Bay, 16 B-25s were loaded onto the USS Hornet, and by April the 2nd, the Hornet pulled out to sea with its escorts. Two heavy cruisers, four destroyers, and a fuel tanker. This was Task Force 18. Many watched the carrier go under the Golden Gate Bridge, seeing it packed with twin-engine medium bombers. Quite a strange sight. The Hornet's crew had been told nothing of their mission, nor their destination. It was rumored they were simply ferrying some B-25s to Pearl Harbor. Despite the rivalry between Army and Navy, the aviators aboard the Hornet got along pretty well. When the Navy crew asked them about their mission, the Army men simply shrugged and looked away. They were ordered not to talk. Eleven days out of San Francisco, Task Force 18 met up with the USS Enterprise and her screening force of heavy cruisers Northampton, Salt Lake City, four destroyers, and another fuel tanker, designated Task Force 16 under Vice Admiral Bill Halsey. It would be Halsey who would assume command of the combined force and Enterprise's air group would provide protection and reconnaissance for them all. The crew of the Enterprise knew nothing of their mission and were very curious as to why B-25s were on the USS Hornet. Machinist Tom F. Cheek said, As I flew over Hornet, I looked down and I saw those B-25s packed on the flight deck. Needless to say, I spent the next three and a half hours wondering about our destination. Tokyo wasn't even considered. Later that very morning, Halsey made a public announcement over Enterprise's loudspeakers. This force is bound for Tokyo. All of the crews cheered. The combined force took the exact same route Nagumo and the Kido Butai took to hit Pearl Harbor, ironically, but in the opposite direction, of course. Aboard the Hornet, the B-25 airmen were briefed by Lieutenant Commander Jerika, who had served as a naval attaché in Tokyo, and he knew the country very well. They all pored over maps and intelligence reports, identifying major landmarks that could be used for navigation to targets at low altitude. Jerika told them everything he knew about Japanese anti-aircraft defenses. Doolittle would lead the squadron, and they would hit military and industrial targets in Tokyo, Yokohama, Nagoya, Kobe, and Osaka. After dropping their payloads, they would fly into the South China Sea to newly constructed special airfields along the Chinese coast. There, they would land, refuel, and fly off for safer airfields deep in China's interior. The B-25s would be turned over to Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist forces, and the crews would be smuggled back to the United States later on. Doolittle exclaimed, If we all get to Chongqing, I'll throw us the biggest goddamn party you ever saw. If anyone had to crash land or bail out, they were told to seek out Chinese civilians for help, 
and all the men were to memorize this phrase, which is supposed to mean, I am an American. Though from all the sources I'm reading, it is really a, a bizarre sentence that was written by some American. It should sound more like, When Jurika saw some of the pilots not taking this advice seriously, he warned them that if they were taken prisoner by the Japanese, they could expect to be beheaded by a katana. The ocean was very rough. When the two carriers and four cruisers refueled from the tankers, two men were swept overboard and rescued later on. On April the 18th, the day Hornet was scheduled to launch Doolittle's bombers, the task force breached Yamamoto's small craft picket line. Then at 3.10 a.m., Enterprise's radar picked up two blips around four miles away to the southwest. Halsey immediately ordered a turn northwest to avoid the vessels before resuming their westerly course. Shortly after the first light, Enterprise launched a search flight and a cap. At around 7.15 a.m., one of the search planes, an SBD, returned and dropped a beanbag message which stated an enemy surface ship at latitude 3604 north and L5310 east had most likely seen the carrier task force. Halsey wanted to get the carriers as close to the target as possible and continued on west. At 7.44 a.m., the Enterprise lookouts made direct visual contact with a small vessel about two miles southwest. From the carrier flight decks, the vessel seemed to vanish and reappear because of the heavy sea waves. Halsey ordered cruiser Nashville to destroy the vessel, but there was little hope of taking her out before she radioed back Japan. The vessel was the Nitamaru, a steel hull fishing saipan around 90 feet long, taken into the IJN to guard the sea approaches to Japan. The Japanese crew told their skipper, Two beautiful Japanese carriers passing by. But the skipper looked at the ships and he said back, Yes, they are beautiful, but they are not ours. The skipper radioed the contact report immediately and Halsey was notified it had gone out. The jig was up. Halsey had hoped to take the carriers another 150 miles further west, but... Now he believed they had no other choice but to order an immediate launch. Enterprise flashed the order to Hornet. Launch planes. To Colonel Doolittle and his gallant command, good luck and God bless you, Halsey. As the Hornet turned into the wind to make ready, the Nashville raced at the Nitamaru and opened fire with her six-inch guns. The shells splashed all around the Nitamaru as described by a crewman named Casey. Shells were tossed like machine gun bullets. Flashes ran around the ship like lights on an electric sign. The plucky little saipan actually fired back at us with her small caliber deck guns, even though the rounds did not even reach half the distance. The Enterprise likewise sent some wildcats to strafe the Nitamaru, they found it surprisingly hard to hit with the sea tossing it up and down. After several passes, the Wildcat pilots reported the ship was hit pretty bad and doubted her crew was still alive. The ship sank shortly after. The crews aboard Enterprise watched the whole thing go down, and it was pretty embarrassing. The Nashville had fired no fewer than 928 6-inch shells at a little saipan 
and the Wildcats spent 1,200 rounds of their .50 caliber ammunition. The Nitamaru's small machine guns even managed to take down an Enterprise SPD, though the pilots were rescued from the sea later. Aboard Hornet, the B-25s were topped off with fuel to make sure even the few pints that may have been evaporated were replaced. Each airplane carried a, a 500-pound conventional bomb and a 500-pound incendiary bomb. Hornet's captain, Mark Mitzer, shook Doolittle's hand and a photographer snapped a photo. The loudspeakers blared, Army pilots, man your planes! And so the pilots got into their aircraft. Hornet turned into the wind, which was blasting at 75 knots. Pilot Lawson looked down from his cockpit at the wet and rolling deck, and his heart sank into his stomach. He was horrified. The Hornet bit into the rough house waves, dipping and rising until the flat deck was a crazy seesaw. Some of the waves actually were breaking over the deck. The deck seemed to grow smaller by the minute, and I had a brief fear of being hit by a wave on the takeoff and of crashing at the end of the deck and falling off into the path of the careening carrier. All of Hornet's catwalks, galleries, and bridges were full of crew watching. A camera crew headed by Hollywood director John Ford recorded the scene from a high post on Hornet's Island. Colonel Doolittle waited for the go signal, and it was raised. He took his foot right off the brakes and he slammed the gas. His B-25 hurled over the deck and was lifted up by a 75-knot headwind. Jerika said of this moment, I would say he was 50 feet in the air within 50 feet of the bow. He went off with the least run and hopped right into the air. Doolittle's success raised the morale of the other pilots, and one by one they each took off. It was so windy on the deck that a crewman, aviation machinist Robert W. Wall, lost his grip and he was wafted into the air and thrown into the spinning propeller of a B-25. His arm was severed at the shoulder and Lieutenant Bill Farrow, the pilot of that said B-25, nearly crashed taking off from the horror of the scene. Ugh. Apart from that incident, all 16 B-25s became airborne and they made their journey to Japan. Aboard the battleship Yamato, the Nidamaru's report came in around breakfast time. The Little Saipan's report seemed impossible to the combined fleet staff. American aircraft carriers charging towards Japan and only a hundred miles away? The absence of a follow-up transmission from the Nitamaru only seemed to reconfirm the report. Admiral Ugaki said, The fleet staff plunged into activities at once. Yamato flashed the signal. Enemy task force containing three aircraft carriers as main strength, sighted. 0630 this morning, 730 miles east of Tokyo. Operate against American fleet. Admiral Yamamoto ordered tactical method number three, which meant sending units from the first and second fleet to sea to intercept the enemy. Admiral Nagamo and the Kirobutai were based off Formosa 
on its way home from the Indian Ocean raid, and they were ordered to proceed at full speed to intercept. However, the Nitamaru's report did not mention the twin-engine bombers. If it had, the fleet staff might have put one and one together, concluding an enemy bombing strike was about to occur over Tokyo. After all, an ordinary carrier strike has a radius of about 200 miles, and the enemy was 400 to almost 500 miles out. That meant the capital could not be attacked until the following morning. At 9.45am, a Japanese patrol plane flying along the east coast of Japan reported the appearance of a strange twin-engine bomber, and that report was not taken seriously, because... As everyone knew, such airplanes could not operate from carriers. Another report came in about three B-25s being sighted, and that report was shrugged off as an obvious error as well. The first bombers arrived over Tokyo Bay, noon on April the 18th, flying at a low altitude to avoid detection from the air or ground to avoid the effective cones of Japan's anti-aircraft batteries. In a bit of an ironic twist, the Japanese observers assumed the aircraft to be friendly planes, much like what occurred at Pearl Harbor. The B-25s passed multiple Japanese military aircraft that made zero attempts to engage or pursue them. Prime Minister Tojo himself was flying over the bay in an IJA plane that passed near one of the B-25s, and allegedly, a man aboard stated he saw a Caucasian pilot in that plane. A crew member of a naval airfield realized they were enemy planes, and directly overhead. Everyone at our airfield was in a state of shock, but there was nothing we could do about it. All of our airplanes were lined up on the airfield, but the enemy aircraft didn't even take a look at them. Instead, the attackers disappeared and flew towards Yokohama area. Keowa Kazue, a civilian employee at the Yokosuka Navy Arsenal, recalled, the sky was full of the unfamiliar, low-flying, squat black American military aircraft. Anti-aircraft fire exploded in the sky high above. In the dry dock in front of my office, the warship Dio was hit and emitting a ferocious cloud of black smoke. Large numbers of wounded were being carried on stretchers to the infirmary next to the docks. As Kazue watched, he was joined by the commanding officer of the facility, Vice Admiral Ishichi Tsuisuki, who smiled and said, The enemy is quite something. Doolittle and the first group of B-25s climbed 1,500 feet over Tokyo, and they hit an oil tank, a steel mill, and a power plant. Some of the B-25s flew directly over the Imperial Palace, but... Doolittle gave explicit orders not to drop any bombs on the complex, though it could have easily been done. The next waves of B-25s were at a treetop altitude to avoid any fighter patrols and anti-aircraft batteries. Yokohama's oil refineries, warehouses, and dockyards were hit, with one of them causing severe damage to the submarine tender Taegi, which was being converted into the future light aircraft carrier Beihua. The last flight of three bombers dropped their load over Nagoya, 
hitting the military division HQ, the Atsuta factory, and the Mitsubishi aircraft works. In Kobe, the Eunoshita steelworks, Kawasaki dockyard, electric machinery works, and Kawasaki aircraft factory were all hit. All of the pilots also gathered much useful information over facilities and defenses of the cities for future raids. Admiral Yamamoto received a report. Tokyo had been bombed from the air, and he became ill. His chief steward, Heijiro Omi, attested to this, claiming he had never seen the admiral look so depressed. Yamamoto retreated to his stateroom and would only emerge several hours later while Admiral Ugaki took effective command of the fleet. 32 bombers with fighter escort launched out of Yokosuga Naval Base to hunt the carrier task force. A squadron of submarines was dispatched from truck to sweep north, and Nagumo's Kirobutai fanned out. Despite all of this, as soon as the B-25s had launched, the U.S. Combined Task Force peeled back eastward and their cap was provided by the USS Enterprise. The Americans would run into some more picket boats, but they were all taken out. Albeit, not easily, like what had occurred with the Nitamaru. The Americans could also hear the radio traffic from Tokyo, and they knew unless some lucky submarines come across them, they were making a clean getaway. All the men aboard the U.S. ships were listening to Radio Tokyo, hoping to hear about the bombing. At 2 p.m., the English-language broadcaster suddenly cut his script short. There was some mumbling in Japanese, and then the channel fell dead silent. The U.S. crews celebrated joyously, and then after 30 minutes, the announcer came back on the air, speaking in a, quote, Shrill, rapid-fire Japanese, and the howl of air raid sirens could be heard in the background. Those who understood Japanese began to translate for the rest of the crews. The announcer said atrocities had been committed. Bombs had hit temples, schools, train stations, and hospitals. Thirty schoolchildren were killed, having been strafed. A woman's voice broke in asking the audience to give blood donations. Give your blood, as the men at the front are giving theirs. Your lives are in danger. Your country is in danger. Tomorrow, even tonight, your children may be blown to bits. Give your blood. Save them. Save yourselves. Save Japan. Aboard the Salt Lake City, Robert Casey remarked, We should have thought the whole of Japan was in ashes. All of the B-25s escaped Japanese territory unscathed, but as the 16 planes made it over the East China Sea, they became widely scattered. Their fuel tanks were running dry. Darkness was gathering in. Doolittle could not pick up the radio beacon intended to guide him to an airfield in Chunchao, and his engines were running on fumes. Doolittle ordered his crew to strap on their parachutes, and they all bailed through the main hatch. Fourteen other air crews also bailed out all over China. One B-25 turned north towards Russia and managed to land at an airstrip near Vladivostok. The crew was interned by the Soviets for more than a year. Of the 80 pilots who flew the mission, four were killed in action. Of the remaining 76, eight more would be captured by the Japanese. 
Of those eight, three were put on trial for war crimes. The Japanese had accused them of strafing civilians. The three men were beheaded. The other five spent their lives as prisoners, and another one would die of mistreatment. The U.S. press reported that bombs had indeed fallen on Japanese soil. Details came out months later, but the headlines were enough to raise morale in the American public. In Washington, a reporter asked FDR for the location of the airfield from which these mysterious U.S. bombers had taken off. FDR said, That came from our new secret base at Shangri-La. The news was very well received as it came a week after the surrender of 78,000 U.S. and Filipino forces in Bataan. The morning after the Doolittle raid, Japanese state-controlled media recovered its composure. In a pun that must have perplexed the Japanese audience, a radio announcer said the raid was not a do-little, but a do-nothing raid. Mitsuo Fuchida would later remark, that it was much more of a do-much raid. Though it was quite brief and relatively small in scale, the Doolittle Raid was interpreted by many Japanese as a very dark omen for the future. Both the IGA and the IGN had suffered a tremendous loss of face. American warplanes had defiled the divine skies above the Emperor's palace, and not a single intruder was shot down. Admiral Ugaki wrote in his diary on April the 20th, Our homeland has been air-raided, and we missed the enemy without firing a shot at him. Admiral Yamamoto remarked, This is exceedingly regrettable, and it provides a regrettable graphic illustration of the saying that a bungling attack is better than the most skillful defense. The Japanese military leaders investigated every detail and soon figured out how the B-25s did it. By midnight of the 18th, the IGA in China reported crash landings in Zhejiang and Jiangsu provinces. The first American pilots captured gave false information claiming to have flown from the Aleutian Islands or a made-up supercarrier. Ugaki wrote on April 19th, they never told the truth. We must investigate further, promptly, so that we can take proper measures for the future. Two days later, he wrote, American war prisoners captured at Nanchang have been sent to Nanjing, where they told the truth at last. Two days after that, he wrote, More truth has been added to the statements of the POWs. So you can imagine what was happening to those captured Americans. The Japanese figured out the B-25s came from U.S. carriers. The IGA would launch Operation Sego with the goal of capturing airfields that had been constructed to receive the Doolittle planes. The Japanese were also very aware Chinese civilians and guerrillas helped shelter the American pilots and the offensive would degenerate into a massive reprisal against the population of Xiejiang and Jiangzhou provinces. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. 
please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War related content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube, where I just put out a four-part series on General Rupertus during the Guadalcanal campaign and the Battle of Peleliu. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Doolittle Raid had been a complete success. Due to this humiliation, Admiral Yamamoto then decided that the destruction of the American carrier fleet was imperative for the safety of Japan and for the success of future operations in the Pacific. Yamamoto would become obsessed with the necessity for a decisive naval victory to rid the world of those pesky American carriers once and for all.